0: Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, it is my privilege to welcome a dear friend, a fellow YPO from South Africa, Salim Devji. Salim, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Thank you. Salim is a strategic <coughs> entrepreneur with expertise in Africa. He has experience in telecom, fleet management, technology, food, and Afro cosmetic distribution amongst others. He's a fine dining enthusiast. And as I mentioned, he's a fellow IPO member, um, who uh, is a very dear friend as well. So Salim, tell me, what would you say are three key milestones in your life or career? So
1: thank you for the question. Uh, Three things that have happened in my life that I would like to share that have really changed me. Mm -hmm. So the first one is getting married to my high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate at the age of 15 to start uh, dating the prettiest girl in the school of Kinshasa. And uh, she was a little bit older to me, but we had such a strong bond. And to get married to your best friend at the age of 23 meant that I had a very strong anchor in my life and that so the milestone is having found someone early in my life that became the foundation and that kept me humble actually so that was the one thing i would would like to share that if you have someone like that in your life it really really makes it much easier for you to be able to look outward because inward that that love that care is really uh taken care of in a sense uh, the second thing is that in 1998, our second child was born in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. We lived in Kinshasa, but uh, my wife's parents lived in Nairobi. So she went for delivery of our second child in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was there was a war going on in the Congo. Mm-hmm. And as the rebels were attacking Kinshasa, they reached the Inga Shaba Dam. They switched off the power. No more electricity in, the, in Kinshasa. Uh, here I am with our two three week old child, and I said "I'm not you know we're not going to go back to Kinshasa mm-hmm. let's just move to South Africa mm-hmm. so just on a whim, I picked up the phone and I literally closed my business my home everything in Congo and I moved to South Africa mm-hmm. uh, It was very interesting because at that time as well was when the bombing happened the US embassy bombings. Mm-hmm. So much happening at the same time, but that really changed my life, taking me to a new country where I thought instead of Congo being my market for business, I will make all of Africa my, my market. And then the third thing that was very important in my life is I always, always wanted to do an MBA. And when I had the time, I didn't have the money. And when I had the money, I didn't have the time. It's a classic issue for leaders. And so what ended up happening is I decided to go and take executive education. And one of the things I've really pushed in my life is if you want to do anything, try and do the best that you can, the highest that you can. Look at the, you know, the, the, what inspires you. And what inspired me was always to go to Harvard Business School. So I took a three-year executive program called Owner-President Management Program. And I, I graduated from that program. And that really changed my life. Being part of an intellectual environment, a serene environment literally in Boston was superb. I made amazing friends, but most importantly, I learned a lot. So those are three things I think were very
0: important Fantastic. in my life. Fantastic. What an amazing recollection of these milestones. So Sareem, let's talk a little bit about Africa and leadership in Africa and how do you manage businesses? So, you know, you moved from Kinshasa to South Africa, you've done business all over Africa. Tell me a little bit about the work that you do.
1: So uh, the work that I do currently, <clears throat> I do two things currently. Uh, one is I, I run my businesses. I have a tracking technology company. And essentially what it means is we take hardware and we take software, we put it together and we go and solve a customer's problem. Mostly in logistics uh, or generator monitoring or fleet management, things like that. And we also have a trading company where we export from South Africa and other countries into Central Africa. So the business side is the one thing that I do. The second thing that I've become very passionate about is I help companies create advisory boards and I sit on advisory boards, helping them strategize how they can move from where they are today to a next five or 10 year vision. That has also been uh, very exciting. So those two things keep me extremely busy and extremely passionate about the continent. Okay. You mentioned that I've done business in Africa. I've actually done business in 14 countries in Africa. Wow. And, and I've reflected on that over the last years. Some I've done well, some I've done really bad. Mm. And you know what works, uh, what doesn't work? Mm. And uh, maybe I can share one or two things uh, on that. So the one thing I decided... Examples also. Sure, sure, sure. So, so one thing I decided was... The little... Of course. So so one of the things I felt is in order for you to be successful in an environment where you think you've got the skills, mm-hmm. the one thing you should also understand is you don't know the country. So going in on your own is a bad idea. Always look ideally for a partner or someone to handhold you because the nuances of every country, we have 54 odd countries in Africa, are all different. So to be able to say, hey, I'm an expert at XYZ, I'm going to go into this new country and I'm going to do it, no. The assumption you've made is that you know the country. In fact, that is often not the case. And homogenizing a continent is, is dangerous. And I think that is true even if you go to the United States. There are so many states. Each state is different. In India, every state is different, etc. So understanding the nuances is key. So I'll be careful about that. And then just maybe a a point on uh, where there may be some opportunities, technology of course everybody knows that there's a lot of technology uh, implementation opportunities in Africa but also people talk about Africa being the last bastion of opportunity and that comes from this idea that there is a huge middle class coming up over the next two or three decades and that's absolutely true. So the opportunities really lie on how do you provide Products and services to a new up and coming middle class. So, very much for example, what India was 20 years ago or what China was 20 years ago, that's going to happen in Africa. So, we haven't gotten into that massive consumption and spending it because there has been money in the pockets of people. There will be over the next couple of decades. So, that's where I would focus. Okay.
0: And, you know, one more question on Africa. You know, if so many businesses, as you said, you've worked in 18 or the 54 countries in Africa. Uh, what are some of the challenges that people
1: should watch out for? So definitely uh, what you expect in a western country you might not necessarily find in, in our countries and in perhaps in most developed countries which is you might not have the same legal system that you expect. You certainly don't have the same infrastructure for example, internet in in congo is still fairly slow and fairly expensive so depending on the business that you're going to get involved with you will not be able to hire the right kinds of people because by definition the country has not really evolved so you don't have the best of uh Uh, universities that individuals don't have the opportunity to get educated the way they could in India. I mean, we know the stories in India about how many amazing engineers graduate. I can tell you in Congo, there's not that many engineers that graduate. So if I need an engineer, I need to bring in an expat to help us execute projects. So the human resource capacity becomes an issue. So we have to provide a lot of training. Infrastructure is also a bit of a challenge. And then the legal aspect of it is not always clear. So, you want to make sure that you check these two or three things before you come in. Okay.
0: And, you know, uh, what you are also doing is you're working with a lot of African businesses, you're coaching them, you're mentoring them, you're on their advisory boards. What are the kind of qualities a CEO should have to be able to run any of these businesses?
1: That's an excellent question. And it is, uh, it's a good question, I think, because to run businesses in Africa is very different to running a business, let's say in a Western country. So the one thing is I believe you need to have uh, ability to think laterally. And what I mean by that is that even though you are the leader of a business and you're supposed to provide leadership, which is a critical portion or part of being a leader, you also have to have knowledge of marketing, finance operations etc so parachuting for example an expat ceo into a position to run a factory is not going to work because again i mentioned this nuances so the nuances of the region is very important so the ceo needs to understand what is the lay of the land right how do you address it when inspectors knock on your door and and bother you because there's a pigeon in your warehouse when you've got other things to think about how do you expand your business So understanding the lay of the land is very critical. Mm -hmm. Understanding the details of the business in a way more than you would in another country because in another country you might be able to depend. Again coming back to that human resource capacity, that would be an issue. And then lastly is you have to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's critical to a CEO is you need to build a team that can support you. Mm -hmm. Now if you are A brilliant CEO, for me, it is one that is teaching the people below you so that they can eventually uh, help you grow the business effectively.
0: Okay, very interesting. And therefore, a follow up question to that is that you know, you've spoken about the qualities a CEO should have, but you know, again, when you coach and mentor so many companies and for your own businesses, what do you look for when you
1: hire people? resilience for sure resilience i'll give you an example in angola we've gone through nearly 700 percent devaluation over five or six years okay now the the importation is an import dependent countries you're supposed to adjust your price based on the exchange rate the reality is you don't have access to foreign exchange so many companies have shut down So all the companies that I know of that have leveraged very highly, that have borrowed money, have all struggled. So in times of difficulties, you remember the oil price went down to zero Mm -hmm. a a short while ago. Uh, Now in an oil dependent country, what does that do to the budget of the country? Mm -hmm. So understanding how to maneuver yourself in those kinds of environment becomes exceptional. If you cannot manage your way around that, you're, you're gone. And that's why I'm saying resilience and understanding your staff will want to leave, especially during COVID times, your staff was lost. They did not know where to find direction. So as a leader, you needed to provide that on top of the challenges of the country. Okay.
0: And you know, when you bring in expats, and when I say expats, uh, you bring in non African expats, and I believe a lot of countries are working in Africa. What is your advice to them to be in, in terms of uh, you know,
1: building resilience? They
0: also need so, to accept culture.
1: Well, well so, so two things. Uh, one is this whole idea of bringing expats is actually an unfortunate situation. As I mentioned earlier, it is ideal you find people locally. So the fact that we need to bring in expats should be a short term thing. Again, I come back to that, that knowledge transfer where, where possible. How do you teach resilience? I think that's tough. I think that's really tough. I think it's a character thing. Uh, do you come from an environment that has been tough? So actually, I would like to hire people and I look for people that have gone through struggles. Because if you've gone through struggles, whether it's in your family, in your business, in your, in your academics, then you've already toughened up. So teaching resilience is really tough and getting into a country like Congo or Angola forces you to become resilient. Given the fact that you've been again running so many
0: businesses, you've got so many of your own businesses, managing multiple uh, nationalities, cultures, what would you say is your leadership style, uh, style Salim?
1: So, the one thing I believe is extremely important is not to make assumptions. Okay, I think assumptions. Uh, you know, one of my classmates uh, was sharing this with me. Uh, assumptions. Uh, assumption is the mother of all F-ups, <laughs> okay. right? Uh, as soon as you make an assumption, you're starting on the wrong foot. Right. So I said, be very careful with assumptions that, that one does. So I, I try not to make assumptions. Okay. Uh, the, the second one is uh, trust. Okay. Trust is so, so important. Now, I've got a philosophy that trust is not necessarily earned. I give trust. Trust is yours to lose. So if I hire somebody, let's say to manage a store on day one, here are the keys, you are responsible. Now, naturally, you should have systems and processes, but you're responsible. It is up to you to prove that I cannot trust you. That's the, that's the starting point for me. Uh, so you know, those are a couple of things uh, that I can share.
0: Okay, Two more questions uh, you know, related to Africa. One is that you know, it is a big market. And I think the message that I heard from you was that even though there are many countries on a single continent, it is not homogeneous. You know, there are a lot of differences. But there has been a lot of talk of a common market. What are your comments on that?
1: You know, uh, I think we've seen over the last uh, few years that politics and economics don't mix. Hmm. And I realized that even though we have, for example, uh, SADEC, SADEC is one of the common uh, markets that we have. Not all countries respect those. Uh, We are exporting uh, containers, let's say, to Madagascar. And the gentleman will say, I need you to give me proof that the product is manufactured in South Africa because that certificate will allow me to get a discount on the importation because of the SADEC market. And the same thing for Congo, they say, what certificate? Why do we need the certificate? I said, well, you're going to get a discount because nobody follows it. Mm -hmm. So there is a challenge in that, although theoretically, there is acceptance of a common market, the reality is is its execution is not happening in the way it's meant to happen. And that could be because of political reasons, it could be because of, of knowledge or learning the customs officer says, no, 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 this, this doesn't work here, or we've never applied it, or it's not yet in function, or it's not yet in application. But in fact, it may be. So there is a challenge that the communication around all of that is not uh, clear. Will there be one? I think so. But it does require a strong leader. This would have to be, let's say, the African Union leader. So if you have a very strong leader that is able to execute, so it, it could happen. Perfect. So now
0: let me move to. You know, you're some of your passions, and you know, you say that you're a fine dining enthusiast. Uh, for our listeners and for our viewers, what is fine dining?
1: So, let me share a very quick story. For our wedding anniversary, we're in Las Vegas, my wife and I, and I said, let's go and have an amazing meal for our anniversary. So, I looked online for ratings and I found this one restaurant the last, uh, the MGM called Joël Robuchon, Three Star Michelin, I actually did not understand the concept of Michelin, went in and had an incredible, incredible meal. I was so blown away with that meal that I went back to the hotel and I typed best restaurant in the world Mm -hmm. and out came the world's 50 best. And at that time, I made the decision to go and eat at every single one of those restaurants. I said, it was my goal to eat at the top 50 best restaurants in the world. Now, what is fine dining for me fine dining was that experience that i had in las vegas which was getting into an environment where a chef has got such incredible passion that he or she has dedicated their lives to create a tasting menu or an experience that's really going to make you think wow how did this person do that give you flavors in your mouth that you might not have felt or tasted before and so i've been on a journey for the last uh, 10 odd years To try and eat the top best 50 restaurants in the world.
0: How many of the 50 have you visited so far?
1: Uh, So, actually, the list is 100. So, I've done nearly 60. Actually, I've done 68 of the top 100. So, here's the problem every year the list changes. (laughs) So, so out of the 50, I've done nearly 14 now. uh, And one year, 17 of the 50 fell off the list because they went to the the next uh, 51 to 100. So, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I'm very, very lucky and privileged to have that opportunity. Fantastic. So say
0: now let's talk to an organization that you and I both belong to and we both love the organization which is YPO. When did you join YPO and why?
1: I joined YPO in 2006, I believe the exact date is March 21, 2006. Okay. I joined because I was at a stage of my life in business particularly where I was not seeing clear of, of how and how I should be addressing some of the challenges. That was actually when I was expanding my businesses across Africa. At that time, I was uh, very strong in telecommunications. And I really wanted to use South Africa as a base to, to do business in Africa. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that, I, as I shared with you a bit earlier, I don't have the full knowledge. I assume I'm the technology king. I know what I'm doing. And I would go into Nigeria or to Malawi or to Ghana, etc., deploy solutions and services and understand. Actually, it's not as easy as that. So I was looking for a peer group that could help me understand the weaknesses that I had, help me identify what was I doing wrong either as a leader or as an operator. So I needed a platform of people that could speak to me honestly and I also like to learn. So for me, uh, my, my big big passion is knowledge and so I look for opportunities to learn and that was my important platform for that. That's amazing
0: and you know, the follow-up question to that is that you've been in several leadership roles in YPO. A lot of members give back a lot. What made you give back so much to YPO?
1: Since I was a child, I saw my parents giving back Mm -hmm. and I felt it was a natural process. So uh, I was, you know, student president at, at the age of 15 and I realized that that allowed me an opportunity to have a voice. When you're a leader, you have a voice and when you have a voice, you can help people, you can influence people, you can make things better. And so I I felt that, you know, in the world of YPO, servant leadership, I could impact a lot more people. So I'm one of the lucky ones. Uh, I've done everything in the chapter level, regional level, international board level, and now, you know, fine dining chair, etc. So in all these different pockets of opportunity, I'm actually learning. Yes, I'm giving, but it's almost selfish because the more you give, the more you learn. The more you learn, the more you want to give. Now, if you're a junkie of knowledge, like I am to try and learn and consume knowledge and consume experiences from people and participate in these types of activities, it's a virtual cycle that you continue going on. So I, I have had amazing opportunities to learn and servant leadership for me is, yes, you give back, but you also take it. So it's a very balanced approach to giving. Fabulous. fabulous. So I'm going to
0: move to the last section of our conversation, which are some questions for you personally. My first question, Salim, and you know what an amazing life you've had so far, and there's so much to look forward to. What does success mean to Salim?
1: So success to me means being in a position of sustainable happiness, Mm -hmm. being in a position where your life is balanced. Mm -hmm. Now balance also itself has a different meaning in different times of our lives, balance will have a different meaning. So when we're starting to get into the workforce, your balance is going to be skewed. You're trying to earn money. You're trying to earn a living. You want to provide for your family. You want to grow your business. So balance is very much skewed towards that. Mm -hmm. And then as you grow older, that starts shifting towards perhaps impact, more to family, hopefully, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, success is being at an equilibrium where you're constantly happy. And it is not the one or two things like me going to a fine dining restaurant and saying, wow, this was an amazing meal. Yes, it was. Or for me, closing a business deal. Yes, it was. But those two things for me don't qualify as success. They're part and parcel of making people around me happy. Okay. And a follow up question to that
0: would be that where do you draw your inspiration from?
1: So I am an Ismaili. So we follow His Highness the Aga Khan. Uh, So I I drive a lot of inspiration from there. One of the things I I really, really found powerful to me is understanding this issue of excess. Mm -hmm. So, or maybe abundance is the right word. So I'll give you an example. I did not understand that time actually is an asset. Mm -hmm. So when you say you have abundance and you should share, it's not just money. Mm -hmm. It's money, it's knowledge, it's time. So if you have an abundance of any of these three, as a leader, as a human being, we should be sharing this. I mean, the the great work that you're doing, you're sharing knowledge, you're getting leaders together and you're sharing knowledge, right? So your time is being used to exponentially benefit others. So, So you don't have to say, here's a lot of money, go and build a hospital. That's fantastic. Please continue doing that but understanding that if we have an abundance of knowledge, help others, mentor others. If you have an abundance of time, use that time to help build capacity in people. If you have an abundance of money, use that money to make the world a better place. So a lot of those teachings that inspiration came to me from His Highness the Aga Khan.
0: Fantastic. And my last question to you, you know, um, and this is a quick question as you look back at life. And as you look at the millennials all over Africa, and this is the world of millennials. What would your advice be to young millennial starting off on their journey either as a professional or as an entrepreneur in Africa?
1: Fabulous question, so uh, I'll give you two answers to that one if I may. So the first one is have a destination okay. and I often even in, in board meetings or when I'm speaking to individuals that are looking for guidance of you know what should I do with my life or what should I do with my business we are, most of us are very fortunate to have opportunities and options. So I liken it to climbing a mountain. If you're at the base and there are several mountains, don't say at the base saying, should I climb mountain A, B or C? And you're constantly at the bottom thinking A, B or C, A, B or C. Climb at least one. Even if you're not sure, A is the right one, climb it. What's the worst that'll happen? You get to the top. You say, oh, this is not the view that I wanted. I'm going to try B. Perfectly fine. At least you've got the experience of climbing that one mountain, come down, and now you've enriched your life. So now you can climb mountain B or C, etc., etc. So, So take a chance. And the second thing, and perhaps uh, to millennials uh, specifically, is it's more important to know the question you should ask than having the answer wow okay. and the reason i say that is i've realized over time as a leader as an entrepreneur you're the one expected to have all the answers actually whatever the problem you have somebody has found the answer so our challenge as leaders is to know the question to ask once you've asked a question, then to go and find out who has answered that question. So the Q is larger than the A for me. The question is more important than the answer. So those are two things I share with millennials. Fantastic, that's so wonderful. Salim, thank you so much. It's been such a
0: pleasure speaking to you. I wish you and everything that you do lots of success.
1: Thank you so much, Ashutosh for this opportunity. Loved it.